Good morning, guys. Are y'all having a great morning? All right, fantastic. How many of y'all, the spring forward kind of sprung you back? Anybody? Um, man, I hope not. Um, if we see some people show up a little bit later, we'll know that they, uh, they got caught. So uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're in our second week in our series called Velocity, where we're looking at the life of Joshua. Now, before we launch into this, I just want to ask just some, a couple of questions. This is always kind of fun for me. What are some of the things that you guys are afraid of? I want you to kind of let that process, let it sit. What are some things that you are, even if you're the manliest of men, you're afraid of something, right? So here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm going to give you 30 seconds. I want you to turn to the person next to you, and I want you to tell them what you're afraid of. Wow. Something's kind of funny. <laughs> we got a lot of people talking over here, and nobody over here has any friends, I think. All right, let's, let's get back to it. How many of y'all, you said snakes? Let me see your hands. All right, cool. All right. Any of y'all say spiders? All right, cool. Fantastic. Um, what about heights? Me and you. All right, that's cool. All right. Uh, what about death? Anybody said death? All right, cool. Quite a few people. Uh, what, what's some of the ones I missed? Zombies. Zombies. <laughs> All Failure? Yeah, absolutely. Somebody else? Being alone? Yeah, absolutely. Slugs? Your cable bill. Maybe you should try direct TV. I'm joking. Well, I'll tell you. You know, as we talk about all of us are afraid of something. One of the things we talked about last week, and we defined the word fear, fear is an emotional outburst of unbelief. An emotional outburst of unbelief. You know, we can know all the logic up here about why we should do it or why we shouldn't be afraid of this or that, but really it all comes down to emotions. And here's one of the things. You know, we can all say, you know, snakes, cockroaches, uh, spiders, whatever that is. But I even want to push down into that deeper because what is your greatest fear? And I just want you to think through that a little bit. You don't have to say it out loud. But your greatest fear. You see, some of you guys greatest fear, if you're kind of like me, is not being able to provide for your family. Another one, uh, your greatest fear um, uh, may be the loss of a child. Another greatest fear is that your marriage won't make it. Um, the greatest fear, and so somebody said, is just being alone, dying alone, uh, always being alone. Um, you know, there's something about fear that, that can paralyze us that can tyrannize our lives, it can keep us from experiencing all that God wants us to experience. You know, uh, one of the things we're talking about in this book of Joshua is God had promised the Israelites some amazing things. We're going to see today that they're going to be right on the edge of the things that God had promised them. But what was standing in between the promises of God and where they were at was a big, raging, nasty river of fear. 
and all of us, God has given us, God wants to give us some amazing things. John 10, uh, chapter 10, Jesus says this, I have come so that you may have life and have it to the fullest, have it to abundance. God wants to give us some amazing things. But in order for us to be able to experience the promises of God, one of the things that you and I are going to have to do, and this is what we're drilling down deep today, is we're going to have to come face to face with our fear and cross over it. Because all of us, all of us, all of us, God has a plan for our lives, but in order for us to get to the other side, we're going to have to confront our fear, our biggest fear. Let me tell you about some of the things that God had promised the Israelites. Uh, back on, uh, on these screens back here, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 7 through 9. I'm not even going to read it. I just want you to read it. Read these verses, and I want you to see the land, the type of land that God had promised the Israelites. You know, up to this point, they had not had a land of, to call their own. They had not had their own home. How many of y'all have ever rented a home or apartment or anything like that? Cool. Almost all of us, right? You know, when you rent something, one of the good things about renting something, if it breaks, you ain't got to fix it, right? Now, the bad thing about it is that you're taking money and you're flushing it down the toilet because you can't ever get that money back. You know, up to, up to this point, for the past 440 years, the Israelites have been renting. They have been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and for the past 40 years, they have been wandering around the desert hoping to have that permanent address. And God wants to give them an amazing and abundant land flowing with milk and honey, as we see. Not only that, but we looked last week, God promised Joshua some very specific things. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 3 and 5, this is what it says. I promise you what I promised Moses. Wherever you set your foot, you will be on the land that I have given you. That's a big promise. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live, for I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you nor abandon you. Those are big promises, aren't they? But in between those big promises is a big problem. Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. Let's read it. Then Joshua rose early in the morning. He and all of the Israelites left Acacia Grove, this little place they were camping, and arrived at the banks of the Jordan River. By the way, that's seven miles away. Now look at this next part, verse 15, where they camped before the crossing. It was harvest season, and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. Joshua took the Israelites, numbering around 2 million, and they left Acacia Grove, where they've been camped out since Numbers chapter 25. Since then, uh, uh, Moses has preached the entire book of Deuteronomy. Moses has died, and now Joshua has come on the scene. And Joshua leads them seven miles to the edge, to the border of the promised land. And what's standing in between the land God had promised them and 2 million Israelites was this raging flooding class six rapids of the Jordan River. Now, two million people. Let's put this in perspective. All right. if, you, if we took the metropolitan city of Nashville and all of its surrounding counties, 13 surrounding counties around Nashville, if we put all of those numbers together, that would equal 1.6 million people. All right. So th even that is still not quite 
what the Israelites probably had at this, mo- at this moment. They had two million. Imagine if everybody in, in the metropolitan city of Nashville and surrounding areas got, their, got their, uh, their children together and their wives together and their possessions and you know, their pets and traveled and moved seven miles. That's some crazy stuff right there, right? That's the type of thing that we're talking about. They go seven miles, and look at verses 1 and 2. Early the next morning, Joshua and all the Israelites left Acacia Grove to ride at the banks of the Jordan River where they camped before the crossing. Three days later, they came to the raging Jordan River and camped there for how long? Three days. Three days, they stare at this raging flood stage river. Now behind me, I have some pictures and some video of some flood stage rivers, rivers at flood stage. You know, one of the things, the word Jordan, and I just want to spend some time talking with you about this, the word Jordan means to, to descend deeply. And the Jordan River was a very small river in Israel, about the size of the Red River, to be honest with you. Um, the Jordan River had three um, areas where it began. It began in Dan, this little city up to the north. It also uh, had one of its origins, uh, Caesarea, um, Philippi, um, is one of its origins. And another one of the origins is from Mount Hermon. Now let me tell you a little bit about Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon was a snow-capped mountain in northern Israel. Had snow on it a lot until things started getting warm and it started melting. The, the mountain, Mount Hermon, rose 9,232 feet above sea level. So you had the snow that was melting down Mount Hermon and, and rushing wildly all the way down to the Dead Sea, which is 1,300 feet below sea level. It's the lowest place on earth the Dead Sea is. So do the math, all right? You may want to check my math because I'm not good at math, all right? It goes 9,200 feet to 1,300 feet. That's 10,500 feet. It plunges two miles. And here it's plunging rapidly. And we see here, I mean, we see all of this destruction and all this stuff from flood. How many of y'all were here during the 2010 flood? And a lot of us were. In fact, this church, one of the things that this church and many other churches like us, we went and we went into homes and we tore out sheetrock and we replaced all of this stuff. I mean, but all the destruction just a quarter mile from here was up at Woodstock right across the interstate. There were homes just destroyed and devastated because of flood waters. When I was in college here at Austin P, I used to teach canoeing. That's one of the ways I, I made my living. And I love canoeing. Um, one of the dumbest things I've ever done was get on a raging flood stage river. By the way, this is uh, footage that was shot in India. A flash flood that just happened quickly and they were caught without notice. One of the dangerous things, the most dangerous things I've ever done was canoe a flood stage river because you can't even, you don't know the, the, the river has stuff and it's murky and it's moving logs and it's changing sandbars and all of this stuff and people can be killed. It was the dumbest thing I've ever done. It was this type of dangerous thing that the Israelites are staring down for three days. Three days. They're staring at this wondering, how am I going to get across? How am I going to get across, and how are we going to get across safely without us being drugged downriver? I mean, this is the type of thing, the dangerous thing. And I, th- I think, you know, sometimes 
God, why did God keep them there for three days? I think the biggest reason why is because sometimes God likes stacking the deck against us. That doesn't sound good, but hang out with me for a sec. See, God could have taken them to the edge of this raging Jordan River. By the way, this river was now 50 times larger than it's ever been because of this flood stage during harvest season, and it's about as wide as a football field. And two million people have to get across this. Children, animals, all this stuff. God let them sit there and look for three days. They went to sleep at the sound of raging water for three nights. And I think, you know, God could have totally taken them through it really quickly, but I think the reason why God didn't is because he wanted to show them just how impossible their situation was. God wanted to bring them to the edge of their self and realize that they couldn't do it, that they were incapable. Let me tell you, sometimes God stacks the odds against us and then gives us a firsthand perspective to remind us that we can't and that God can and some of you, you know what I'm talking about right now because you got, a lot of, you got a lot of I can'ts in your life right now. I can't pay my bills. I can't keep this marriage together. I can't keep on going on the way I've been going on. I can't, I can't, I can't. I can't love these kids. I, can't, I don't like my stepkids. Um, I don't, you know... Whatever it is, we got a lot of I can'ts. And God likes bringing us to the edge of I can'ts so that he can show off that he can. That is why he brought the Israelites seven miles for three days looking at his impossible situation of the river of fear. And not only that, even if they got across that river, what they're looking on on the other side is a nasty, huge, really well-fortified city called Jericho that we're going to be looking at next week. I mean, this, this city, there were mean people living there, right? So here, they're looking over the river of fear, and they realize that we can't do it, but God can. You can't do it unless he does it. And that's just, that's just the key. Now, here's what I, I like saying this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 says this. Our lives are like ordinary, unadorned clay pots. And let me tell you, if you feel like this, that's good. All right. Now, some of you, you, didn't feel, you don't look like that now, but you woke up in the morning, and that's how you felt. Ordinary, unadorned clay pots. That's to prevent anyone conf- from confusing what? God's incomparable power with us. You know for yourselves that we're not much to look at. <laughs> I like that. Our weakness highlights God's strength. Our can't-do-it highlights God's can do it. God wants to use the impossibility of your circumstances to highlight himself and his power that he can. And that's what we see. Now, when you, face, when you see yourself facing the impossibility, thank God for it and trust God that he's going to take you through it. So the, the first step that they do about going across this river is first, they stay close to God. They stay close to God. Look at verses 2 and 3. Three days later, the Israelite officers went through the camp, giving these instructions to the people. When you see the priest carrying what? The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God move out from your position and follow them. Let's let's talk about the Ark of the Covenant. We all know what this looks like, right? Because we've seen this movie right here. We've seen... Indiana Jones? Thank you. All right. 
We've all seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. Let me tell you a little bit about this ark, this Ark of the Covenant. It was a wooden box that was four feet wide and two and a half feet tall. It, this wooden box was overlaid with gold in the inside and the outside, and there was a solid gold lid on the top, and on top of those lid were two angels, cherubim, with their wings um, sprung out, and this formed a seat. It was called the mercy seat. And what would happen is um, one time a year, a priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and the, the Shekinah glory of God would show up among that, on top of that mercy seat, and he would meet God face to face, and he would offer the sins, uh, a sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel. So that's what we got. We got this ark that's solid gold lid, gold inlay outside, inside, and inside of it, there were three things in the Ark of the Covenant. There was the Ten Commandments. There was uh, uh, Aaron's staff, and this is the staff that turned the water in, uh, of, the, of the Nile into blood. It's the one that parted the Red Sea, did a lot of amazing things. And the third thing, inside the Ark of the Covenant was this little jar of manna. Now, I know some of you are going, what is it? And that's exactly right. Because manna means, what is it? And what manna is, it was bread that God fed his own people as they wandered in the Israelites for 40 years, uh, in, among Israel for 40 years. So that's what we have. And really this Ark of the Covenant is the visible representation of God. This is something cool. Did you know during those 40 years as they were wandering in the wilderness, how did God lead them? God led them at night with this pillar of fire, and during the day there was this cloud. But here, God doesn't lead them with a cloud or by fire. He leads them by the Ark of the Covenant. Um, the word Ark of the Covenant is mentioned 10 times in these 17 verses. Look at this, it says in, in verse 4. Since you have never traveled this way before, they will guide you. Talking about the priest carrying the Ark. Stay about a half mile behind them, keeping a clear distance between you and the Ark. Make sure you don't come any closer. Now, what's so cool is up to this point, God was leading them by fire and cloud. Now God is saying, I'm going to lead you in the visible representation of God. The Ark of the Covenant will go before you because you've not traveled this way before. Leave that verse up if you would, please. I love that. You know what? You know what led the Israelites through the water and into enemy territory? It wasn't the Israeli special forces. It wasn't Joshua, him being a military commander. You know what led and who led them into enemy territory? God himself. I like that. And the reason why God himself led him is because you have not traveled this way before. Let me tell you a little bit about some of you, I would dare say all of us, we've not traveled this way before. We don't know what tomorrow is going to happen, right? We don't know what's going to happen at your job. We don't know what's going to happen at your home. We, we don't know what's going to happen with your children. And because we don't know that, and that unknown brings this element of fear, that's the reason we need to follow God. Because what looks like fear to us, God already knows what's going to happen. That's the reason why he is leading them. He's going to take us to a place where we've never been before. And in order for that to happen, we need to make following God the center of our lives. What's the center of your life? Think through that. Let that sit. What is the center of your life? Getting a better promotion? Getting a mate? Getting more money? Getting a bigger ministry? What is at the center of your life? 
Is it following God? When we make following God the center of our lives, he leads us to places we've never been before. Let me tell you, I, uh, um, one of these worship songs I used to sing 10 years ago, 20 years ago, this song was called, Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I never did like those lyrics. Let me tell you the reason why. I'm so glad that you're in my life. Let me tell you, God's not in my life. I'm in his life. What many of us tend to do, we don't make following God the center of our lives. We make us the center of our lives. We make us the focus. We make decisions. We make plans, and then we ask God to bless them. Right? We say, God, listen, I'm going to buy that truck. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lease that car. And then we ask God, now, this is, the, this is what I've done. Now you bless it. It don't work like that. Try that with your wife. Try that with your husband. Hey, honey, I went out and bought a bass boat over the weekend, um, and now I want you to be happy with me. She ain't going to be happy, right? You may be murdered, right? Let me tell you, what we do with God is we make decisions, and then we want to cram God into it and say, God, you blessed the dumb decision I just made. God, I leased the car. Now, you fix my finances. And God's going, you done screwed up your finances. You want me to come in and, and rescue it? There are consequences to this. We come up with plans and we pray that God would fix it, but we need to know we've not been this way before. God has. If we're not centering our life around God, then there will be nothing of lasting significance about our time here on earth. You know, Israel had weapons, they had plans, they had strategy, but where was their faith at? Look at verse 5. Then Joshua told the people, purify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do what? Great wonders among you. Now think about this. Joshua is a military commander. How many of y'all are in the military? Let me see your hands. All right. For those who are in the military, that's almost all of y'all, really. All right. Um, I've never served in the military. I don't know if you can tell that. Okay, when you go for a deployment, right? I mean, before this happens, they start taking you through training. And you have to do, you, I mean, you're doing all of this stuff, training, equipping you, so that when you go over there, you are trained and well-equipped. I mean, they're showing you, they're giving you, you know, they're giving you weapons, they're showing you how to use them, all of this stuff, right? If you're a military commander and you're getting ready to go into enemy territory, what do you think a military commander would say? You need to sharpen your swords. You need to polish those shields. You know, let's go over this flanking maneuver uh, one more time, and let's look at this military strategy. Joshua was a military general. He didn't say none of that. You know what he said? Purify yourselves and pray. I like that. Because, you know, it, I think Joshua said that was because he realized this wasn't going to be a fight like hand-to-hand so much. This was going to be a spiritual battle. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says, we don't battle against flesh and blood. There's something going on deeper here. And I, I think Joshua had this idea, you know, sharpen your swords like it all depends upon you, but let's pray and purify yourself like it all depends upon him. And that's exactly what they did. The word wonders there, I love that, is the Hebrew word pala, which means separate, distinguished, to be wonderful, miracles, to go beyond the bounds of human expectation. I think what Joshua was saying, if you want to see God go beyond the bounds of your expectations, then you better purify and pray. You know, God is not going to use something that's dirty. He's just not. 
And if you want God to show up and show out and do some miraculous things in your life, then some of us, we just need to spend some time getting our hearts broken by the things that break God. When's the last time you just, you just cried over something that you did and you just cried out to God? I'm not talking about just cried over something you did because you got caught. That's, that's something different. I'm, I'm saying, were you just, you were brokenhearted because you had sinned and not, it, it wasn't just an emotional thing. You actually changed your behavior. You stopped sinning and you started doing something else. See, Joshua says, I want you to purify and you pray, and he does that. I mean, he does that, and he's telling the whole nation of Israel, but the whole nation of Israel can't purify and pray themselves. It's, it talks about an individual. He says, it starts with you. Two million people comes down to one person purifying themselves, and another person purifying themselves. And, and if enough does that, you got million, two million people that are purified. Let me tell you, if you want to see God show up and do some miraculous things in your family, let me tell you where it starts. It starts with you. If you want to see God show up and do something different in your spouse, it doesn't start by you trying to change your spouse. How many of times we've tried that and it didn't work? It starts by God letting God change you. If you want God to show up and do something miraculous in your finances, then it starts with you. You see, if we want a different world... If we want a better country, United States, it doesn't start with Mitt Romney or Santorum or Barack Obama. Let me tell you where it starts. It starts with you. Our, our shining white horse isn't a donkey or an elephant. Serious. It is Jesus Christ. Some of you, y'all, you're kind of cringing because I'm talking about this. That's good. I'm kind of enjoying it, to be honest with you. All right? Let me tell you, our, if we want a better United States, then a better United States is going to be made up of better states, which are going to be made up with better cities, which are going to be made up with better counties, which are going to be made up with better communities, which are going to be made up of better neighborhoods, which are going to be made up of better homes, which are going to be made up with better people, consistent of a better you. It all starts with you. You want God to show up and do some amazing things, Right here. Purify and pray. That's what he's saying. And that's what, exactly what happens. Joshua purifies, he prays, and he starts moving. Look at what he says. In the morning, Joshua said to the priest, look at the action here, I love this. Lift up the Ark of the Covenant, lift it up, and lead the people across the river. And so they started out. They started moving and went ahead of the people. And then the Lord said to Joshua, I want you to keep that verse up if you would. The priest, he tells the priest, I want you to go up and I want you to go across the river. If I'm a priest, this is what I'm doing. Excuse me, how are we getting across the river? All right, it's raging. Did I say it was raging? All right, are we going to have a bridge? Joshua's like, you can put your hand down. I don't know the answer. Okay. Let's come up with a different plan, all right? I mean, think about this. I, it, but God, he says, they start moving, and then it says, the Lord said to Joshua. When did God speak to Joshua? When Joshua started moving. You see, let me. T- this is a huge importance. Up to this point, the only word God had gotten from Joshua, um, the only, I mean, the only word was in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua starts moving in obedience, and that's when God starts talking to him. 
God is not going to give you more information until you've acted on the information that he's already given you. Uh, guys, we're terrible about following directions. I am, I am not like the typical guy. I'll read in, instructions. Most of you guys, you're handy. There ain't nothing handy about me, right? There just ain't. I mean, I am, I am folding out there. Like, like my, I got three boys, and we'll put together Star Wars Lego ships, all right? I will open up the directions. I know what it's supposed to look like on the box, but I'm starting with step one. Let me tell you, God's not going to show you step seven if you hadn't started with step one yet. You see, one of the things that we have a tendency of doing is we want God to show us step 35. Who am I supposed to marry? What am I supposed to major in? You know, what am I? And we want the details, and God, we've not started acting and obeying on what he's already given us. And God will not show you more until you've acted in what you already got. That's huge. Psalm 119.105 says this. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. God's word is not a 50,000 watt spotlight showing a mile down the road. It just don't, it don't work like that. Number one, if God really showed us a mile or a year into our future, we would be so scared to death we wouldn't move at all. Let me tell you how God's word is. God's word is like a lamp. It, it, you're holding that lamp. It's like one of those Coleman lanterns, right? And you can see what's in front of you. I can't see what's over there. But you know how I can figure out what's over there? See that? I'm, I'm going to do that one more time. Some of y'all, public school education. Ready? All right? And then guess what? I've acted on what I see in front of me. And then I take another step. I take another step. That's how God works. See, God's not going to show you step 18. He will show you the step that you need to take right now. And if you act on that step, then he's going to show you another step. And then you act on that step, and he's going to show you another step. And you know what? If you do that long enough, you're going to look behind you, and you're going to go, wow, look what God has done. God has brought me through a, river, a raging river of fear because I was willing to obey and put one foot in front of the other. I love that. Once you take a step, God will show you what your next step to take is. But God will not show you any farther than what you've obeyed. All right? Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Now, here's what you need to do. Tell the priest to carry the Ark of the Covenant. When you reach the edge of the Jordan waters, go and stand in the river. Okay, I want you to put yourself in the mindset of these priests. Just hang out with me for a sec. All right, Joshua, the leader, has elected you to do this. <laughs> Joshua ain't even going to do this, right? Joshua says, I got a good idea. You do it. You go, and I want you to take this 200, 300-pound, golden, paperweight, huge sinker, and I want you to put it above your head, all right, and hold on to it, and I want you to step out in this raging, dangerous rapids where and you can't even steady yourself because your hands are full. Just put this in perspective, all right? Your hands are full, and I want you to put this sinker on. I mean, how many of y'all like fishing? All right, you take the fishing line, and what do you tie at the end of it? A sinker. That's what, they, that's what they're holding, a sinker. And what happens when you're holding a sinker? You sink. Thank you very much. So I want you to go out 
and I want you to go out and stand in the river. <laughs> Next, can we vote on this? Joshua says, no, I've already done that once. We ain't voting. All right? Look what it says. So Joshua told the Israelites, come and listen to what the Lord your God says. Today, you will know that the living God is among you, and he will surely drive out the Canaanites, Hittites, uh, Hivites, Perizzites, Gergesites, Amorites, and Jebusites from all the... Those are all the enemies that are living in the promised land right now. He's going to drive them out. Look, the Ark of the Covenant, which belongs to the Lord. The Lord of who? The Lord of the whole earth. Will lead you across the Jordan River. Now choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. The, the priests will carry the Ark of the Lord. The Lord of what? All the earth. Verse 10 says, the living God is among you. Verse 11 uses the Lord of all the earth. Verses 13 says, the Lord of all the earth. I think Joshua was saying, you know what? We've got the visible representation of the God, and we're going to go invade the people of, of, of Canaan, the Hivites, Perizzites, Gergesites, Mosquito Bites, all of those bites. We're going to take in, all of them. They are worshiping stone and wood, and they're false gods. They're dead gods, but we have the living God among us, the God of the whole earth. Now, quick question. This river of fear, the Jordan, was it located on earth? Not, this is, thank you, yes. If God is the God of the entire earth, and their biggest problem is on the earth, what does that tell you? That God has got this. God has got this problem. God has got this. He is holding it in his hands. He's got the whole world. Thank you very much, right? I mean, and let me tell you, some of you, your biggest problem, you think, is the person who is sitting right next to you right now. Or maybe it's the person who ain't even, they're not even here. They're at home because they got a hangover. Or they're here because they don't want anything to do with God, right? But let me tell you, your biggest problem, God has already got. He's got this. We just got to follow him. And we got to walk in that river of fear. Look at verse 13. The priest will carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. As soon as their feet touch the water, the flow of the water will be cut off. What is that next word? Upstream. It will be cut off upstream and the river will stand up like a wall. So what he's saying is you take steps, watch God move. All right, keep on reading. So the people left their camp to cross the Jordan. And the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. It was harvest season, and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. But soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the Ark touched the water at the river's edge. I mean, these people are taking a huge step of faith into this raging river. What's about to happen? They're holding this Ark of the Covenant, 200 pound maybe? They start walking into this flooding, raging river. Their feet, as they're walking... I mean, they're thinking, some of them, they may have seen the miracle of the Red Sea. By the way, this was something totally different. The Red Sea, Moses went, and it split, and nobody got wet. But let me tell you what's happening here. The priests are carrying the ark, and they step into the river, raging, and their feet get wet. All right, when, God, when are you going to do something? I'm waiting. They keep on walking. Now it's up to the shins. Uh-oh. Who's, who, who's, who, whose idea was this? Right? And then they get up and they walk again. It's up to their waist. And they're wondering, when is God going to do something? 
When is God going to show up? And they're standing there holding this ark. Let me tell you, this is something so cool. You know what kept their what you know what kept their feet firmly planted on the bottom of that riverbed of that raging river? It was the weight of the Ark of the Covenant. Let me teach you a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is glory, and the Hebrew word is called kabod. Everybody say that kabod. The word kabod means glory, but it also means weight or heaviness. You see, once we put God in his proper place over our heads and we start walking into our river of fear, what keeps us planted firmly, even when the river still keeps on surging, is the glory of God. I like that. Now, I'm going to keep on reading. I love this because our big idea today says God won't move to save until we move to obey. God won't move to save until we move to obey. You know, we expect and we want God to do it all in our lives. We want God to move without us moving at all. But let me tell you, God just doesn't work like that. God only hits a moving target. When we start moving, then God starts showing up and he starts moving. God will move to save once we start moving to obey. And we see this principle throughout the entire Bible. I could just tell you story after story. One I'm going to tell you probably the quickest, and if you don't know about Bible, you may not know the story, but the wise men that were following the star, they would follow the star and the star would move. And we see this principle all throughout the Scripture. All throughout the Scripture. God will move, but He won't move beyond our obedience. All right? I love this. Look, at, I'm going to keep on reading. This is in verse 15. But as soon as their feet of the priest who were carrying the ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water above that point began backing up. What is that next, those next words? A great distance. <laughs> How far is a great distance? I'm getting ready to tell you. At a town called Adam. Let me tell you, Adam is 16 miles upstream. They are standing needy, waist-deep, in a raging water, and God is doing something 16 miles away, and they're wondering when God's going to show up. 16 miles. And some of you, that's exactly how you feel right now. You feel like you've tried following God, you've tried obeying God, and you've started stepping out into that river of fear, and it's raging, and it's rushing. You feel like you're going to fall, you're going to lose your grip, your balance. And you start, man, you just want to throw out the tile, you want to throw off, and you just want to start doing it your own way. But what you don't know is that 16 miles away from you, God's doing something miraculous. You keep on persevering. Don't stop. Don't quit. God is doing something amazing, but it may take some time for you to be able to see it. It may take some time before your husband or your wife starts changing. But you start with you. You start stepping. You start obeying. I'm going to keep on reading. A, a, a great distance away at a town called Adam, which is near Zarathan, and the water below that flew to the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry. Then all the people crossed over to the town of Jericho. Sometimes we're going to have to get our feet wet before a miracle is going to happen. And sometimes it's not instantaneous. It's not. Two million people, though, cross over dry land. When we move and take steps and start obeying God, God will move to do some miraculous things. But sometimes it's 16 miles upriver. All right, as we close, I want to read two more verses for you today. This is in Joshua chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. 
This is what happens. Two million people go through the raging, rushing river, and now they're in the promised land. And this is what Joshua tells them. He told them, go in, into the middle of the Jordan, in front of the ark of the Lord your God. So the, the priests are still holding the ark, and now there's no water anywhere. It's dry. Each of you must pick up one stone and carry it out on your shoulder, 12 stones in all, for one, <clears throat> one for the, each of the tribes of Israel. When we will use these stones to build a memorial, in the future, your children will ask you, Hey, Mom, hey, Dad, what do these stones mean? Then you can tell them. They remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant went across. These stones stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. You know, so many times I feel like God does some amazing things in our lives and we just forget about it. And Joshua says, I don't want you to forget this. Your children, they're going to start wondering, is God even real? Does God even exist? Does God even move? And you can be able to say, you know what? He does. Because right here, I got this rock. God saved our marriage. One of us had an affair 22 years ago. But God saved our marriage. He is still real. We need visible representations that God still moves. So here's what I'm going to ask you guys to do. Up front, we have a bunch of rocks. <laughs> These rocks are rocks that when I was seven, eight, nine years old, because I'm from here, my dad would give me a quarter, a five-gallon bucket to pick up rocks out of the garden. <laughs> and uh, these are a lot of those up here today. I just scooped them out. I want you to take this rock, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to take it home. I want you to get a permanent marker. And I want you to write down your impossible situation that you're facing. I want you to write down the river of fear that you are facing right now. It may be a marriage that's getting ready to break up. It may be finances. It may be bankruptcy. It may be a child that's running away. It may be an addiction. I want you to write that on here. And then underneath it, I want you to write that date. Today's date. And here's what I'm asking you to do. When God shows up, when God does something amazing, when God starts moving 16 miles up from your circumstance, and you're able to cross through that addiction, that problem, that marriage, that friendship, that bankruptcy, whatever that is, I want you to write that date of when that happened. And then I want you to put that somewhere that you can be reminded that God still moves stones. He still moves problems. He still moves people. He still moves circumstances. Because all of us need reminding of that, don't we? So as the band comes out and plays, I'm going to pray. I want you to come down front and I want you to grab one of these. I want you to do what I asked. Write those problems down. And see what God does. Let's pray. Dear Jesus Christ, we come to you right now and... Lord, we, uh, all of us so many times, we're, we're just so, just staring at an impossible situation. We're staring at a, a really big fear, a problem. And Lord, we're wondering, when are you going to rescue? When are you going to save? God, I pray. Lord, I pray that we would start moving so that you would start saving.
Lord, that we would start walking in obedience and you would start rescuing. Lord, I pray that we would follow you in all of our ways. And Lord, as we come and pick up our biggest problem, our biggest fear, Lord, I pray that you would show up and show out in our lives, in our situations, in our problems. And Lord, you would turn these raging fears that swirl all around us into dry riverbeds of God's faithfulness. Of course, in Jesus' name that we pray.